10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Spain, this is The Drive Home with Harry Waters. Hello everybody, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, depending where you are. This is The Drive Home, although I assume most of you are already sat comfortably at home, um, enjoying what has been thus far a delightful Christmas, uh, Christmas, Easter break. Um, what am I thinking about Christmas for? It's a bit warm for that, isn't it? So I hope you're all well. I hope you've had a, a pleasant week thus far. What have you been up to? Anything exciting? Anything uh, Anything different? My week thus far has been oof, not much different to normal. Um, a fair bit of writing. I had a few uh, lessons this week, which was good. In fact, I had one of my my most fun live lessons that I've had in a long time um, with the Pearson and BBC Live classes the other day. Um, there were eleven classes in there. We had student. We had different classrooms from um, oh, all sorts of areas. We had Croatia. We had Italy. We had Poland. We had Mongolia. We had Slovakia. Um, oof, who else was in there? I can't remember. That's our ages. We had someone from Brazil in there as well. It was absolutely delightful to have so many uh, different nations all in there, all talking at the same time. And it was, it was one of those live lessons that I got an absolute, like a crazy buzz from and couldn't, couldn't calm down for, for the rest of the day. Um, other than that, it's been quite a bit of family time. And currently, just looking at my dog going absolutely off the wall as she jumps all over the, the spare room bed, which is always nice for any guests that are coming. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting week so far. It's been a bit, bit of family time, bit of uh, writing time, bit of teaching time as well. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen uh, Seville in at Easter time. Um, Semana Santa is called here, Holy Week. Um, oh, we've got uh, Hurley listening in from Haiti there. Hello there. L l pleasure um, to have you here. Nice of you for joining us. Um, yeah, so Holy Week here is all about when the... Um, the Santos and the Virgenes, they go around and, and they're, they're huge statues that are carried around the streets with, with uh, penitents walking in front of them in their, in their Nazareno outfits. And it's, it's a huge, huge deal here in Seville. And um, it's not been on for the last two years because, as you can imagine, for the past two years, huge swathes of people walking around, heaving around, sweating on each other has not been exactly everybody's cup of tea. But um, it is back, which is nice to see for the city. It's nice to see everybody out and about again and something of a of normality returning. And I, I believe next week as well, kids are allowed to take their masks off in schools. So there are all sorts of exciting developments that are happening um, here at the moment um, in terms of, well, school for kids. It's going to be so strange for them not wearing masks, I guess. I know my daughter's very excited to see her friends' faces all over again. Um, but that's that. And today, 
I do have a wonderful guest. I'll introduce him a bit better right after we come back from the news. Um, he's somebody that has had quite a large influence on my, particularly my materials writing career, um, but also on my teaching career as well. He's, oof, how, how do I put this in, in a, I'm trying to think of the perfect words for it here. He's, he's an experienced, there we go. He's an experienced uh, writer, trainer, author. Um, he's a bit of a legend to me, um, not trying to sound like too much of a, of a sycophant Kino here, but he is a bit of a legend to me. He has helped me massively and his books are so useful in terms of, you know, if you're taking those steps into materials writing, he can help guide you along the way. He will be here very shortly. Um, before that, we're going to shoot off for the news. Do stick around. We'll be back very, very soon. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out. Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. 
With many schools across England and Wales now on holiday for Easter, or with a break imminent, The Guardian is reporting that many GCSE and A-level students are being advised to begin revising in earnest. Experienced teachers and education experts alike are making the recommendations so students avoid exam stress. Across the UK, close to 2 million teenagers will be preparing for exams with students in England and Wales and Northern Ireland, sitting their first papers on May 16th. Many teachers already know that the secret to reducing stress is good preparation and that a little bit of stress during the break might well avoid super stress in the future. The article features comments from Daisy Christodoulou, former teacher and the Director of Education at No More Marking. Christodoulou recommends revision strategies such as self-quizzing, rather than re-reading and highlighting notes, and advised that revision for each subject or topic be spaced over days rather than crammed into one. But the advice also focused on leaving time for rest, relaxation and getting a good night's sleep as these activities also help retain information in long-term memory. A new north-south divide is highlighted in the Manchester Evening News. It focuses on newly released government data, which shows that there are eight parliamentary constituencies where there are no schools or sixth-form colleges, state or private, offering A-levels, with all but two in the north of England. An MP in one of the affected areas said it was unacceptable to not have a sixth-form in her constituency. In Bolton West, one of the eight areas on the list, local Tory MP Chris Green said that having gone to a secondary school with a sixth form, I'm quite surprised by the number of schools without one. According to the Northern Powerhouse Partnership Lobbying Group, the Greater Manchester Borough of Bury has not a single school with a sixth form, though it does have two further education providers offering other post-16 qualifications. Former Children's Commissioner Anne Longfield said, it's shocking that some children are growing up in areas of the country where there is no provision for them to study A-levels, and doubly shocking that so many of them are in the North. As part of the government's recent levelling up white paper to tackle regional inequalities, 55 so-called education cold spots, many of which are in the North, will get extra investment. Struggling schools would be offered more support and new selective sixth-form colleges created. But Northern Powerhouse Partnership Director Henry Murison said the selective sixth forms aren't the answer to problems. A story on the Mirror Group newspaper website focuses on talks to introduce a new GCSE, which will focus on the environment and sustainability. School Standards Minister Robin Walker said talks were underway with Exam Board OCR with a view to introducing the course. He stated, The department is exploring proposals for a new GCSE in natural history. This is after a range of campaigners expressed concern about how subjects such as climate change, sustainability and environmental protection are being taught in primary and secondary schools. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week you may find you have a bit of time on your hands, so why don't you learn a new skill? I'm talking learning to code. There's loads of ways to get started for free. Check out Scratch from MIT, a block-based programming language. There's tutorials and a huge community of people who share their work. Imagine if your next presentation to the pupils was done through a game. The limit is only your imagination. If you want to get a bit more serious and you have a child to drag along with you, take a look at the Astro Pi Challenge. There's Mission Zero, spend an hour and program a Raspberry Pi in the International Space Station and get a certificate of where and when uh, yours, um, uh, the, the pupils code ran. If you want to get really involved, check out Mission Space Lab where you need to invest a bit more time, but there's also some free kit for school involved.
Do you just want some me time? Then look no further than EduBlocks or Trinket. These browser-based editors come with tutorials to get you going. Their tutorials help you cross over from blocks to text-based coding. If you want to be supported in coding, why not join me for an introduction to Python on May the 4th, 4 to 5 p.m. I'm going to teach an introduction to Python coding in Trinket. Any Teacher Talk radio listener can come for free. Details of how to join will follow shortly. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you very much, Steve and Joe, for your news, for your Two Minute Tech. Um, always a pleasure. So um, I do have here with me uh, John Hughes. Doesn't need much introducing. He is um, quite big in the ELT world, we could say. He's a... An author, a trainer, a presenter. He's, he's written over 50 titles. Um, I could sit here and list them all, but I won't do that. Um, <laughs> a few of which I have in my, my, my bookshelf myself. I think for me, the ones that have been you know, hugely useful are the, the, um, obviously the, the ETpedia ones with the ideas and um, materials writing as well, to be honest. Um, the one you uh, wrote with Lindsay. But anyway, here we go. Um, You're here. Um, I haven't even let you say hello, and I'm already talking over you. John, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Harry. Uh, First of all, I hope you can hear me. Loud and clear. Excellent. Very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a nice way to spend my Wednesday afternoon. It's a different way, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. I don't think, I can't remember when I was last on the radio. It's been a while, anyway. Well, for me, it was last Wednesday, but other than that, um, <laughs> so so John, before we before we jump into the the meat and bones um, of of the meat of this, let's start with the bones. Yeah. Um, before we get go any further, so can you tell me a, a little bit about your your a potted history to your journey in ELT? Uh, well, it was like lots of people. It was. Sort of accidental. Um, I, in 1992, um, I was living in London. Um, I needed to, I was studying an MA and I needed to spend some time in Central Eastern Europe and uh, I needed a way to finance it a little bit. I got a bit of a grant, but I thought, oh, I'll teach a bit of English while I'm out there. I got what was called then the C-Tefla is now called the CELTA or something. Um, And I did a little bit of practice teaching in London and then I ended up in eventually in Poland via Berlin and Prague and in 1992 that part of Europe was an exciting place to be it was kind of well it still is but it it was a lot of things were happening the wall had just come down and so it was a a place for a young person to head off into and I got uh, I was very lucky with one of my early jobs I ended up at a university in southern Poland there were quite a lot happening and they were teaching something called business English which I thought sounded less interesting but I was actually employed to run a course bizarrely uh, to run a course for business students they to have well-rounded business students they also had to study liberal arts and they had to study drama and public speaking and I had an MA in this in drama and so I got pulled into that initially 
and then um, typically they were short of English teachers and the head of the English department said, hey, can you teach something called business English? And I thought, well, I can have a go. Um, and I kind of got really into it. And I kind of, I got business English because a lot of it was about communication skills and presentations and negotiating. And for me, that was very kind of, there was a real, I liked the whole skill aspect of it along with the English. And so I kind of got it. And I, I kind of never looked back after that, really. And I did things like I got sometimes I worked for language schools, but sometimes I just went and I like I spent six months in a car components factory in Italy, just working with engineers, helping them with English because they'd been bought by an English company. And typically the English company had said, well, OK, everybody needs to speak English now. And these poor Italians were like suffering. And uh, so I was kind of drafted in as the sort of man on the ground and it was fascinating i can tell you i could spend the next half hour talking about phosphating car parts but i won't <laughs> um so i kind of drifted into that and then i moved into general english and like lots of people i taught different things and then i ended up sort of being a director of studies and i got into teacher training um and in the sort of second half of my life, yeah, I did a lot more teacher training a lot of i managed a teacher training department and and obviously uh, increasingly, I was writing more and more for publishers, and it got to the point where I suppose 70% of my life was spent writing, and I was doing so much of it that actually other things sort of stopped just because you physically can't do it all. Um, so if you look, if you define me now, the majority of my works, materials writing, a smaller part is teacher training, um, and, a, and a smaller part from that is teaching sometimes because it's just really important to go back and teach if you're writing materials. Um, particularly if I'm writing materials, I will try to get involved in teaching students who I think are the sort of students who will be using that material where possible. Um, I absolutely agree. Like when it comes to, to writing, if it's easy to, to, to kind of step away completely from teaching um but you do need to still connect with those materials like you know at least from time to time i i find with my materials i i i teach most of them um before I, i'm i'm gonna write them obviously you can't do it with absolutely everything you, you yeah. can't just go out there and yeah. i'm gonna but you know it's good to know the the demographic at least you know it's good to know the the, the type of people that you're you're aiming at Quite often you have assumptions and actually teaching, it, it just confirms your assumptions actually as being probably correct. But certain things always pop up that surprise you or you, or you notice. Um, or the other, actually the thing that I really like but is harder to set up is to get another teacher to teach with my materials and get to observe the lesson. Then you really learn something. Because um, I've, I've, I've watched teachers teach with my materials in all sorts of different parts of the world and uh, things have happened to my materials that I just would never have dreamed of being possible. Uh, fascinating. What are you doing? Well, no, what have you done to my class? Sometimes it's sort of you're watching something a teacher just think, wow, I wish I'd included that in the material. That was brilliant, you know, or but that's actually sometimes how you discover future writers or certain sort of teachers' books writers or teachers who just kind of are firing off and they've got great new ideas or not new ideas just things you've forgotten yeah that's that's, that's you actually kind of brought something up there a little bit that that made me think of 
you know, the different types of materials writers that you can get, you know, you have your, your student book writers who, who go out there and, and do the name, but then there's the teacher's book writers. Now, when I started teaching, I didn't even touch the teacher's book. You know, I'd go in there and I'd grab the book. I'd be like, I'm going to vibe off this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to play around and do this. Later on, like I discovered just how awesome some teacher's books were. And it's like, oh, wow. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting. I think teacher's books actually uh, are kind of responsible for lots of teacher training that goes on because lots of teachers don't have access to much teacher training. Um, and it's teacher's books... Uh, well-designed ones where you can learn a lot from them um, and it was actually teachers books I started with because they 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 used to be a kind of an apprenticeship into writing you'd start with some worksheets then you'd write a teacher's book then a workbook and then a student book that tends to let happen less or it's more varied now because there's online materials as well but teachers books were the, your starting point and they were not and I, I still like writing them sometimes because they, they're a bit like writing a methodology book if they're nice ones because you can throw in a bit of methodology and why you're doing certain things and and you're allowed to do the slightly wacky ideas in teachers books I mean stuff that would never get into students books because lots of teachers probably for very good reasons wouldn't do a certain activity but sometimes you get away with it in a teacher's book and something that you're just dying to do yourself. And you think, oh, there'll be a few teachers out there who are going to take do that and run with that idea. Um, so that they're kind of they're quite liberating to write sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that I would find very appealing, um, particularly to be able to see someone else's kind of materials and then like vibe off that and be like, wow, what would I do there? What would I, how would I change that? Um, so, yeah. yeah, I really like the. The, the, I find the I find them appealing, um, like you say, because it isn't also directly to the student, so you don't have to. But there is there is a bit of a culture amongst teachers that it's a kind of badge of honour to not use a teacher's book, and and I think I was probably one of those teachers, and I think materials writers we probably are because we naturally think we could probably write the course book better than the original authors, you know. Um, and uh, so we tend not to use them, but actually we're missing a trick, I think, a lot of time because you can you when you do eventually start working with a course book, um, you just learn a massive amount about teaching. But also, if you want to be a writer, you learn a lot by working with other people's materials. So I did my time. Uh, I learned to teach with Headway first edition. Well, you imagine it's I don't know, it's like seventh edition wow. now or something that shows how old I am. But um you know, we, we learned how to teach a certain type of lesson in those, you know, when it first came out. And then English File, which is also a brilliant book. Um, those working with those books, you learn a lot about because uh, there's a difference between really brilliant materials and writing and just like a uh, like a great lesson. They're not, you know, it's not quite the same thing necessarily. And there's a certain um, just because you teach well, it doesn't mean you, you write materials well and possibly vice versa sometimes. I don't know. But um, uh, yeah, a lot to be said for teachers. Books, yeah. I know I've, I've found that I've learned an awful lot with, um, so with a lot of the work that I do, I, I create the, uh, the worksheets for you know, the, the classes, for example, for, for the Pearson and BBC Live classes. You know, creating the worksheets was, was super easy. You know, you know I, I was given a video, which we'll, we'll talk about very shortly, and I found creating the worksheets was so easy. It was creating the teacher's worksheet that was actually much more challenging for me. It was, you know, looking more deeply into it, how they were going to deliver it, and, you know, the other ideas that could spring off it. And I found that I learned a lot 
a lot more personally, I felt, you know, in terms of my future materials from creating the teacher stuff rather than just the the student, the direct to student materials. Yeah. And there's always a danger with that. When you're writing like that, you're actually writing a lesson that you yourself would teach. But that isn't actually what you're being paid to do. You've got to create something that's as sort of will work in as many different contexts with as many different teachers as possible. And actually, that's where teacher training comes in, because if you spent lots of hours observing many different teachers teach classes, um, you kind of when you're writing materials, you're trying to think, how do I write for all those different types of teachers, you know, um, uh, or, or write in a way that will work for most of them? Uh, to be helpful because um, you've got some teachers who will just follow it exactly as it's written you've got other teachers who are gonna they're gonna do their own thing and carve it up and change it anyway but you need to just produce something that will work for for that majority so if you've had the chance to observe lessons it's it's really helpful yeah yeah 100% I think I've learned more from observing others um, you know in, in doing teacher training and, and stuff like that than than I even did from being observed. You know, I did a few self observations as well, but you know, I got a lot from these being observed. And but you know, you've when you are being observed, usually you you plan your lesson out to a T, and you know, you, you do everything by the book. You know, everything's dot, all T's across and I's are dotted, isn't it? Exactly. And so they come back and they say, "You did you did this, this, and this was good, and this wasn't so good." It's like, well, I would never do another lesson like that in my life. But observing other people, you get so many new ideas and different perspectives and you just think wow that's actually a really cool thing to do yeah and also you're reassured i think a lot of the time you can go and observe a class and think okay yeah that's that's what we do that and and you you know teaching in many ways is quite an isolating experience if you're you're there you know i mean okay you're with your students but as doing it teaching you don't get that chance to sort of share and just the chance to observe and uh and see that other people do things in a similar kind of way that's also very reassuring for a teacher i think yeah uh, now i mentioned some of your ideas books before we uh before we well just as we came back from the adverts now in the in the adverts they the, the sorry in the news they mentioned um teachers prepare or students getting prepared for their a levels now and starting to revise now and look at ahead of things uh, one of your books is 500 ideas for for teaching exams um <laughs> yeah that's a lot of ideas. Like that's a lot of ideas. I mean, you've got another book that's a thousand, but so, but that's 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 aside. That's not for exams specifically. So, what would be your number one advice for a, a student preparing for an exam? Your number one piece of advice? Oh, if it's if it's preparing for a specific exam, um, then it's that balance between are you are you are you learning language? Are you learning the exam? And the closer you get to the exam, the more you make sure absolutely that you know that exam back to front. When you walk in, you know how many minutes you're going to spend on that part and on the other part and all of that kind of thing. Um, I mean, that isn't just that isn't just uh, advice for students taking language exams. That's any exam. I mean, I've trained teachers to take the diploma exam and I've seen teachers who were perfectly capable of passing it, but they didn't because they didn't stick to the time. They didn't, they didn't have a, a kind of strategy when they walked in and exams are such a sort of, um, I mean, obviously they're important so on, but they're such a kind of mindset, you know, um, 
and they can be enjoyable if you walk in with a strategy and your plan and you you know which bit you're going to do first and which bit you're going to do second so as, as students get close to that i think it's all about strategy um yeah i completely agreed you know the amount of exam classes i've taught over the past 15 years you know it's as many as i've had hot dinners um it's, i mean it's a bit of an art form because you you get your students and obviously they they want to pass the exam but some you've got to get from a certain language level to a higher language level and so naturally you want to do the things that you would do in a normal language lesson to help students get there and you also want it to be enjoyable but you've always got that tension so when you're 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 having that day where you're kind of the wacky teacher doing something and you've got this great activity that you've dreamt up and then you walk in and then other students say, well, is this going to be on the exam? Well, no. And it's like, well, why are we doing it then? Um, so there's that kind of tension that you have. So it's um, it's a bit of a tricky balancing act exam teaching. Yeah, it really is. It is, you know, it is particularly, as you say, you get closer to the exam is that you know this is just how you do it this is a technique this is what you've got to do this is how you're going to do it and and you mentioned something about exams can be enjoyable now when i did my b2 in in spanish i loved it i absolutely yeah. loved the exam yeah. because i've been teaching for a certificate for i don't know how many years beforehand and i got in there and i'd seen the exam before i'll be honest i hadn't done a huge amount of preparation but that's because I had done loads of preparation of the FCE exam. It was very similar. All the techniques were the same. So I got in there. I, had, I knew I had the level and I was confident and I went in and I just had fun with it. And like even the speaking exam, they had to shut me up at the end of it, surprisingly <laughs> enough. They're like, okay, thanks. You can go now. And I was like, oh, come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can get students to that point, it's great. But obviously, I understand lots of students are and it depends, you know, what age they're at and their reasons for needing it and all of that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different issues going on. Exactly. Because it was involved in exams. Exactly. Yeah, I, I wanted to do it and it, it wasn't a, a need thing. I was like, you know what? All my students do exams. So I was like, oh, why not? I'll do one. You know, yeah. I, I, I paid for it four months in advance, whatever. And I was like, I'm going to study so hard. I'm going to study so hard. But then, you know, I, I didn't really study enough. Um, but, you know, I, I got very, very good results. But then... You know, I've lived here. I'd lived here for nine years at the time. So if I wasn't ready to pass a B two exam, then it was quite shameful, to be honest. Um, right. So uh, yeah, it was kind of at that place where I thought, you know, I'm ready to do it. And a big reason for that was because I watched a fair bit of TV in Spanish, um, yeah. which is a nice segue um, <laughs> into video. Into video. Um, now, we've had a few questions um, across various social media outlets about video. Um, I've seen um, I've seen some of your your bits and pieces about video. Um, now, there is I'm going to start with uh, my own. Yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, I have quite a long history with video, but not all of it's been enjoyable. I mean, I have quite a mixed view of video in, in English language teaching because um, I before I got involved in English language teaching, I worked a bit in TV and I understood how video was made and I understand the theory behind it. And I kind of, uh, and I've always enjoyed getting students to create videos. And when I, in, in the early days of video, this was before YouTube and stuff, we had to muck around with big VHS cameras and we couldn't edit. We had to just film it as we went along. You know, you'd spend hours setting up a project with students making the film 
and it would become like a film set where everybody's just sitting around and waiting and you're thinking actually there's not much English being practiced in this and I think that's one of the, the problems of video in the classroom when we talk about oh let's get the students to create a video you think well yeah we can but if I do it with like younger learners I might have teachers complaining that all my my son's daughter is doing is learning how to use the editing suite not really actually practicing English very much which is the danger with it and it, and during the 90s the equipment was so ludicrously large to play a video I worked for a language school which said uh, one of its selling features was that you would have the video lesson once a term and what it meant was that they'd spent a lot of money on this enormous framework and huge tv that you had to wheel through the corridors into different classrooms and they had this selection of videos and most of them were Mr. Bean or Faulty Towers. And there'd be a worksheet that some teacher had written to go with it, which was like 10 questions. And you had to listen out for the answers while watching. I mean, it just didn't make use of the video format at all. And so once a term, you had to sort of wheel this thing in, switch the lights off. The students would watch John Cleese in Faulty Towers for half an hour. And at the end of it, you'd have to check this worksheet to see if they understood any of it. And they probably understood barely any of it um, and it was really just not satisfying but the great thing was in 2005 with YouTube and the sudden accessibility of video we could show 30 seconds at the beginning of a lesson and just grab everybody's interest and it, it just revolutionized what you could really do with video but simply because of it suddenly became so much more accessible I mean, exactly there was great that. video content around, but it was just logistically from a teaching point of view, it was incredibly difficult to sort out and, and expensive for schools as well. And I think a lot of how it's gone now in, in recent years, you know, with the invention of TikTok and whatnot, um, anything longer than three or four minutes now has become, you know, that's... I can't imagine putting a video on that was more than four minutes unless, you know, you've built up to this whole thing and this was a huge event in your class. You know, this this maybe maybe an eight-minute video at a push, but I can't see students being able to to sit there and focus on a video much longer than that because, you know, the way things have gone now, our attention spans have just kind of shrunk. You know, if somebody sends me a video or, or, or a voice message to my phone and it's more than two minutes. I'm just like, oh, I haven't got two minutes. I can't <laughs> listen to you whittling on for two whole minutes. I, well, I don't want to listen to that. So I don't know. I think it's it's somewhat reduced in, in recent um, years. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, I mean, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we, again, we're sort of having to generalise that might be true in certain classroom contexts. There are certain situations where students actually, whether they like it or not, they're going to have to get used to listening to long stretches of speech. So if you're, if you're preparing students who are going to go to university and potentially more and more do online study where they are going to watch video lectures then they're going to have to kind of get used to it. And as a teacher, you're forced into a situation where you, you, you need to be giving them lengthy content. You might, you might want them to watch an 18-minute TED Talk or something because that's what they've got to deal with. So, or, um, uh, or in business English content, English for specific purposes, where they're watching technical videos or whatever. I mean, they just maybe have to, look to, to watch videos that are longer. So, I mean, I do think there's a danger. We always say, well, all our students are watching TikTok now, so we better just use those in the classroom. Yeah, that's true to a point. But as a teacher, 
um, we also have a responsibility to maybe expose students to stuff that they wouldn't normally find themselves watching and they might be surprised by what they do actually like as well. I mean, surprising your students and surprising them with something that they didn't expect to be interested in, but they are. I mean, that's that's quite exciting, isn't it? When that yeah, happens I, as well. I think one of the big issues that, that I've seen, uh, certainly in observing and, and stuff like that, is when teachers kind of just fall back on video as like okay well I've got three minutes and they start I'm just gonna chuck a video on and it doesn't really have that the, the focus that it needs and it is just kind of a filler now don't get me wrong every now and again we don't have time to you know, the class fit we finish our materials three or four minutes early maybe we're not feeling great you know it's lovely to have YouTube there to fall back on but I think it's just you know it kind of underutilizes it and it it kind of loses its appeal to students as well in the end then because you know I remember when I you know started teaching using video in class was not not rare rare but it wasn't common now it's kind of students get so much of it that when teachers do just chuck it in at the end of a class it kind of devalues the sense of, of having video and actually really making the most out of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that, you know, we used to sort of think you could show, put on video and that would be a big surprise. It goes back to my, you know, the language school that's offered the video class once a term. Um, you know, in those, it was a selling feature in those days. But I mean, now the idea that if I, you know, if we said, oh, every lesson's going to include a 30 seconds social media video. So, I mean, nobody would be particularly excited about that or think that's a good reason to sign up for that language school, would they? So, um I, yeah, I was talking to friends about this because obviously I'm involved in video production with published course materials. And so there's always that sort of pressure. How much do we make the videos reflect the types of things students are watching? And there's a few issues with it like, well, yeah, everybody's watching TikTok now, but it's relatively short lived. If you're going to invest a load of money in materials and so on. Um, do you want them to reflect that? And there's also other stakeholders involved as a student, but if they're younger learners as parents, so the parents are concerned about what they're actually watching and learning about as well, or there's the, you know, the curriculum they're following and all of those kinds of issues come into it as well. Um, and there is an issue of, well, if they can watch a TikTok video in English at home, is it then the job of the publisher to then just publish more of that? Shouldn't we be trying to actually do offer them something slightly different? Mm -hmm. um, so there's those kind of questions come up as well. I think for, I'll for tell teachers you the, and everybody. The amount of times I've I've spoken to people when I've been making materials, the amount of times people have said, it "Needs to be like a TikTok video." It's like. <laughs> Does everything really need to be like a TikTok video? It's like, I don't gyrate very well. Yeah, and actually, if you think about it, I mean, if you spend how much time flicking through TikTok videos and you think, well, what percentage of those are generally good or interesting and not just sort of wallpaper? It's sort of, uh, you know, and, and getting that right, if you were genuinely going to start to try to produce that kind of content, that would be, it could be quite hard to get it right some of the time. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly not the easiest thing in the world. I'm I'm not particularly TikToky. Um, anyway, you said you had questions. I do. I was about to Let's go over to, to the, the first questions. question. <laughs> I was about to go over to the first one here. Um, it's from Nicoletta, and she says a question for John: When using a longer video, for example, an interview, for the purpose yeah. of debate, 
um, how to organize better. How do you organize it better so you don't neglect vocabulary um, and you still stay on, keep the debate as the main focus? What? So she wants to use the video to provoke a debate in the class with the students, yeah? Exactly. But she wants to keep the vocab, but the debate's the main focus. So what could she do for okay, that? Well, she, so she's, in, um, she's extracting the vocabulary from the video, I'm guessing. So either she's going to pre-teach the vocabulary and then watch the video, or she's going to sort of extract the video, the vocabulary from uh, the video. Um, I mean, she would need to do that because presumably it's the vocabulary that they're going to need to then debate afterwards. Is she really... The, my, my problem with classroom debates, and this isn't so much just the issue of video, it's that issue of when you say to students, well, let's have a debate, and you discover that most of the students have the same opinion or, um, or, or you don't really kind of get much sort of divide between students. There can be different reasons. One, they maybe don't have the vocabulary or they don't understand the issue. So the video would help with that. Or maybe they're not interested in the issue in the video. They need functional phrases, I think, to genuinely have that discussion. But the other thing is... Um, and I think this is particularly good nowadays, is to actually tell students, right, I want you to watch the video from this perspective. You are a grumpy old person who votes conservative every election and you have certain views. I, I'm, I'm making this up on the spot. But you give them a sort of a character or perspective and then you say to another student, you're looking at it from uh, the perspective of a 25-year-old who's watching the video in this way. And you actually give the students perspectives and then get them to respond in that way. And that's, you're more likely to control some sort of debate based on the video. But I also think it's a really interesting exercise to have people not just watch video, but read a text or listen to something from another perspective and think, well, how would that person feel if they were responding to it? And that's that's quite a nice exercise to, because it's, it's not just sort of linguistic or setting up the debate. It's actually genuinely encouraged students to put them into other people's shoes and, and see things from other people's perspective, which is something that doesn't happen these much these days. And so I just think from an educational point of view, that's quite an interesting way to watch video as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, if it is a longer interview, um, there are things you can do. You know, you, you can play the thing, the video the whole way through or, you know, you can play it in parts if it is a bit longer. Yeah, I mean, if it's a long video, I would break it down. I wouldn't necessarily even show it all. I'd pick out key parts, parts from it or something. Or I might set it. I mean, if you get, I mean, when we're talking about using a longer video and then debate, you're potentially talking about something that might carry on over two or three lessons. I don't think you're going to get it all into one lesson, uh, lesson necessarily. So you might actually take different bits of the video over a series of lessons either. I, I mean, it's hard to talk without saying which video we're talking about. But yeah. Excellent. So the, the next question from Bhavna, um, she said, how can we create self-access lessons for learners using videos? How can we create self-access lessons? Yeah, for learners using videos. Um, well, I mean, you can, you can set up playlists, say, on YouTube, and you can categorize your videos into groups or however students are accessing. Let's assume they're using YouTube or Vimeo or something. You would create, set up your playlists 
And then if you wanted self-access or you wanted to offer students choice, they would choose which video they were interested in. And then you might produce a different worksheet for each video uh, if you wanted them to complete exercises or demonstrate understanding, or it might be something that they get with the, with the video script so they can read the, the audio soundtrack that goes with it. Um, I mean, I think it's quite nice, that idea of self-access. It's pretty easy to set up if you've grouped your videos because you could group videos into by level or topic, um, you know, uh, and you could be just sending them to authentic videos. It means, time, like all self-access, it's incredibly time-consuming for the teacher. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to set the time aside or you've got to get the school that's willing to see it as a useful project. Um, and then you've got to, then I think you do need to write some, I mean, students can go and watch it, but they need some kind of self-study material to go with it. So certainly they could get the chance to have the script unless that it's got subtitles on or um, but then to have some kind of ex series of exercises that go with it um, and obviously like maybe translations of key vocabulary or some kind of vocabulary work linked with it yeah I know something that you know I started to use video a lot more probably five or six years ago um, and a lot of it would be you know in the almost flipped classroom approach, you know, giving the power to the students to then bring their their video in and almost teach the class, you know, on a certain topic, on, on you know, something uh, that we were working on in class, you know, they would go off and they would find something to do with the environment is what I usually make them do. Um, it's kind of my thing. Um, <laughs> and they'd come back and they'd, they'd present the video. So, you know, I think it's, video has really helped kind of pass the baton over to the students and make it, allow it to be more student-led. I mean, it's so easy in terms of, and, or getting them to take a photograph or whatever. I, I have this thing where if you get to the end of a unit of a course book, um, a typical homework assignment would be to send students off to make a video linked to it. Or if, if there's... Um, if I've done a unit in the book, I might for homework say to all the students, take a photograph uh, connected to the unit and then they bring it into the class, they present it and they talk about why they took it. Um, and that's recycling vocabulary that they've learned through that period. And the same with video. I've seen videos. I had one from a teacher. She actually sent it to me once where students had done a unit on food which is your standard course book type of lesson on food, but they'd gone out. Oh, they no, she'd asked them to do the exercise where they take the photograph and present it, but they thought that was a bit boring. So they got together as a group and they made a video tour of places they like to eat in their town. But added to that, they even had key vocabulary pop up at the bottom of the screen that they'd learnt from that unit of the course book just to show the teacher that they'd actively included that vocabulary and show, I mean, we talk about visible learning. For me, that's real visible learning, but that's, it's also, it was just wonderful because it was the students just using their own initiative, not liking what the teacher had suggested and thought, well, we can do better than that. And that's, that's when creativity with video just 
takes off completely. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing teachers dream of happening to them, isn't it? Really? Absolutely. I love that idea of doing it at the end of a unit and going off and making a video and well, it's also because you know, I mean, also, you know, the, t- the course book units by necessity choose what seem like quite mundane everyday topics. So you're suddenly saying to the students, okay, can you do better? Come up with a, a more interesting angle on the topic of sport, which has been done to death, but we kind of have to cover it. So we've done it. Now you come up with something more interesting and they, they probably will. Um, yeah. So yeah, I love that kind of freedom they have um, when you ask them to make a video or take a photo. Yeah. It's quite funny actually, because, you know, mentioning sport, the amount of times I've taught the sport unit, I, yeah. you know, but what I used to do would, you know, I'd show different sports. I'd go in, you know, here's a different sport. Here's a unique sport. Here's a sport you've never seen before. And then I went into, uh, I did some supply teaching a few months back and it happened to be the sport unit. And I thought, great, at the end of this, we're going to look at some unusual sports so they can all be amazed. And I showed them cheese rolling and they had <laughs> all seen it. They they all knew what it was already. They all knew because, you know, they've, they've had sport done so many times. So many teachers have gone, we need to show them something different. Vanessa has said patank. Um, well, Patank's not an unusual sport. Patank is just, you know, a, a true sport. The there was a classic, um, somebody, uh, there was a, 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 a much older, slightly more jaded course book author than me uh, once when, when I got a new course book out and he, he came up to me at a conference and said, gone, he said, how many silly sports did you manage to include in the unit in sport? And it was sort of like, we've been doing the silly sports unit for a long time just to add variety and also there's a danger that if you include any normal sport well what do you do about the students that hate watching soccer or uh, hate watching cricket or whatever um but i do think maybe we need to move back to just sort of dealing with normal sports again in course books i think yeah we could go there could be another angle on it as well now i'm just going to suggest this one (laughs) the environmental impact of sport there we go there's another way of looking at it Yep, you could. People never think about that. They think, what is, you know, it's 11 people running around playing a game against each other. They don't think about oh, the I do. Every time aspect. the Champions League is like, there's two English clubs in the final, but they decide to have the final all the way in some distant capital city. What on it, earth is the point of that? It's just well, yeah, insanity. Was it, I think in the, the Europa League a few years ago, it was Arsenal versus Chelsea playing in Baku. It was just like... It, it was, yeah, it was just madness. All these fans spending a fortune on plane tickets to get... I mean, it was just incredible. To get to Baku, you know, the, the football centre of the universe. Yeah, that could be that could be an angle of the course, but there's your debate. There you go. There you go. Where should uh, the gender debate and sport? Yeah, there you go. That's a very good point. You know, should uh, should um, should female footballers really be earning that much less than male footballers? That would be another good debate in, in there. Yeah. Um, I think tennis has got that one right with the majors. At least they they pay the same for the majors, I believe. Um, but anyway. Um, and there's plenty of videos you can use for that as well. Uh, the next question actually comes from my mum. <laughs> um, who is who is also she is also a um, a teacher. Uh, okay. She followed in my footsteps. She retired at, at, at forty nine and then became a an ELT teacher after that and went. So and, where is she now? Well, she's now in Wales actually. But she, okay. she, so who's she teaching? She, well, she's now kind of semi retired. She teaches business actually. Okay. She teaches one to one business classes. Um, but yes, yeah, previously she'd worked in 
she worked in Latvia, then Poland. Then she came to Spain wow. for a few years. Then she went to Germany. She's been in Italy and Paris. Has she been on um, your show yet? Not yet. She's she's reluctant. She's reluctant because anyway, never guess. What's a question? It's about um, video, yeah. Her, it is about video, um, okay. and she says she uses video a bit, and it can be really engaging, but she finds it really difficult for mixed ability groups. Um, she finds it difficult to find suitable material for mixed ability groups. Um, well, the starting point for that is there's an old rule in filmmaking called "show don't tell." It's the classic filmmaker's rule that where possible, show it, don't have characters explaining it. And so if you exploit that rule, your starting point with video is to choose video with very little language in it, um, but make use of the visual side. Because if you've got a mixed ability class, um, they're not mixed ability in terms of engagement level of visual literacy these kinds of things so you can tap into that aspect of it um and then give them a task that um i mean a simple example would be where you've got a film which has a very sort of short narrative to it and they watch it and then maybe retell the story afterwards but they're using it with the level of the language they've got uh, i think when you get into video content like that's much uh, has a much heavier language load, like a TED talk or um, or that that kind of thing. Um, then, then yes, it is more challenging from a mixed ability point of view. You have to analyze the script in terms of CFR levels and working out whether it will work for all the students, or you give different students different viewing tasks to, to do. Um, but I think with, yeah, I mean, mixed ability, I would normally tend towards video that's much more sort of visually based um, and build lessons around that. Or if they, if, I mean, if she, if it was video, if it was say business content and it was important that they were dealing with the language in the video, then I might do what I would do with a listening lesson. I'd set them different kind of listening tasks, potentially according to the level of the student. Yeah, and getting your hands on the on the the script as well would also be useful, I imagine. Yeah, um, I mean, if you've got the audio script, and then of course, and you're going to use that in class, you can do different things with it. You can remove more of it for the higher level student, give more of it to the lower level student, that kind of thing. Yeah, but uh, I mean, those are those are all those tricks, sort of from teaching listening skills. I mean, that we're talking more about listening skills which is, is kind of interesting for video because video, the accessibility of video is what revolutionized listening. I mean, the idea now in exams, we still play a piece of audio to check students listening, but they don't see any video with it. With it. Just, it, it doesn't make sense. Because when else do, when do you do it? Okay, now you're listening to a podcast, listen to radio. But in the bulk of, if you're developing listening skills, you would expect video to be a key component of that. Especially in terms of, um, especially in terms of computer-based exams now as well. There are so many computer-based exams. Yeah. Um, they're not all the traditional, everybody goes into an exam hall where you have one tape player at the front and your students come out and say, oh, I was at the back, I couldn't really hear it. Um, yeah. It's not as much like that anymore. It's so easy to access, um, you know, online virtual exams. I'm, I'm guessing one of the arguments would be 
not everybody can have that access. So is it fair for someone doing the exam in in Europe who has access online to somebody doing the same exam or the same level exam in South America? Is it fair that they don't have the the visual aspect? But I, I do think it's, I don't know, somewhat yeah, but bizarre. This goes back to something else that we actually talked about before we, we came on live was about you saying why aren't all course books just full of video now or why aren't publishers publishing more video is because you still have parts of the world where there isn't that infrastructure with technology that allows it to be shown in the classroom um and you've got you've still got uh, curriculum and educational systems built around uh, principles which don't actually necessarily allow video use of video into the into the curriculum so there's those issues. There's a bit of sort of catching up to do in certain parts of the world and infrastructure questions. But in terms of, if you think about, you know, uh, simple kind of, one of my favorite types of video is the Vox Pops video. And I've included them in course materials where we've literally gone out into the street and just stopped people in the street and asked them questions. And you get fantastic responses, stuff that I could never write, you know, responses to sort of simple questions like, um, I remember shooting one in, in a park and we shot it in Oxford because we knew we'd get a range in Oxford is pretty international. So you can get anybody from anywhere with any kind of accent and level of English. And we just had this video about sort of why do you come to the park? No, sort of do you often come to this park? What do you do here? Why do you like coming here? Which was actually the most generative question. And we stopped, I remember we stopped a student from Saudi, we stopped another student, I think from Italy, we stopped a, a lecturer, we stopped somebody who'd retired, lived in Oxford all their life, but every day they came to the park and they just had these amazing sort of, they added their life story to it. And we, if you'd done it as audio, it would have been really hard to kind of get your head around the context, but because the whole thing was shot in the park and you could see the characters. So you had the old guy talking about how he'd grown up next to the park and always walked through it. And he was, re he was retired and he was actually walking on his way to hospital across the park. You sort of saw this entire life emerge, this old character tell his life story on video. And suddenly what might be quite considered a bit dull was fascinating because it was his sort of life story. And that's, that's what video does that audio doesn't. And it's what happens when you, it's the authenticity of video that's great. I mean, I can't script that stuff. I would much rather go out with a film crew, stop people. I mean, I've got quite skilled at going up to people and they'll, we'll video them once and they'll be really nervous. And then afterwards I'll kind of say, no, that answer was great maybe let's do this again or I'll, they'll say something I want to pick out a bit more and we'll shoot it two or three times until I get a really, it's an authentic response, but I've just sort of shaped it so it has some feel to it. And you get really great video content doing that. And I that, absolutely anybody, love anybody it. can produce that material. A teacher can produce that material. I mean, you can just go up to other teachers and interview them and then it's fun for the students to watch a video of a teacher they know from another lesson talking to, to camera. And that, that kind of stuff is great in terms of authenticity and simplicity as well. I love it as well for, for the way students can connect to that as well. I mean, there was yeah. there was one book that I was uh, using a while back where it had that. And, you know, it was going up to people in the street, asking people. And it had these different people from different countries with different accents, with different, like you say, levels of English. There were mistakes in there. And like there'd be students saying, but that wasn't proper English. It's like, yeah, but 
did but you that's understand fabulous it? when they spot that, yeah. I mean, exactly, and it's like, but did yeah. you understand it? Yes, well, there you go. You don't have to know all the grammar perfectly to be able to speak in another language. Well, um, also, that they recognise the mistake is is great. Exactly, practice. yeah. It's it's yeah. so good to, to see that. Um, and, and when I was making Speak Up for Sustainability, all of the, the tips that I got were from people I'd found in the street because I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to be real advice that, you know, um, people w- were giving to me it, although one of them was with my family because it was water waste my name's Harry Waters I've just kind of played with that <laughs> anyway <laughs> we've got one more um, we've got one more question here um, it's from Louise and she says what sources or topics do you most recommend and now this this is brilliant after what you said earlier I'm a bit fearful of being the teacher who plays Mr Bean or Faulty Towers <laughs> as I think it's funny and students sit there in silence top tips for being current so I love that that mentions Mr Bean and Faulty Towers well after in your fairness visual elements I mentioned show don't tell I mean Mr Bean is sensational for mixed ability classes and there's certain vocabulary lessons that I will always still try to squeeze in. There's one where Mr. Bean goes shopping and I think he, he, he picks up t- about 10 different items in a supermarket. He does funny things with it. But if you've got an elementary class and you're just introducing objects you might buy for the shopping lesson, I still haven't found a better video than that Mr. Bean episode. Unfortunately, most of them are on YouTube. So it's, it is still great. Um, I, I just I mentioned Faulty Towers because that always sticks in my head is that it is that moment where as the teacher you're sitting there thinking it's hilarious and then you look around and realize that actually the students aren't really getting some of it <laughs> um so uh sorry I meandered what was the so the question was what, what's how do we stay current <laughs> oh I see um, well, you find out what students are watching and uh, you kind of try to watch some of what students are watching. Uh, I have to say it helps if you have kids of a similar age. I fortunately have a couple of, well, they're not children now, really. They're young adults, um, but they will send me links to stuff that they're watching on. I mean, I'm really up to date with TikTok simply because my daughter endlessly shares videos and some of them are very funny and some of them are just awful but it's um it's a that that's one way of finding out what students are watching the other thing is to i mean talk to the students in your class about what they're watching but i also have certain activities that i do before i might start using videos so um and they're just based on classic um ELT activities like there's if you google the top 12 genre on YouTube I think you'll find an article where somebody recently reported what were the top 12 most popular viewed YouTube type videos so you've got like the unboxing video where somebody receives a box unboxing or the video the how-to video is is you know incredibly popular so I have one activity where I put all 12 up on the board we talk about what they are check students know what they are and then they have to rank them in groups that so they get into groups and they discuss, they rank them from one, your favorite type of YouTube video you watch down to 12, your least favorite. Well, that's doing a couple of things. It's a kind of needs analysis. It's me finding out what they like watching. Um, but it's also too, it, 
it has a really useful vocabulary application because I'm teaching the kind of vocabulary that we all need to talk about video. And if I'm going to use video in the class, particularly from social media or YouTube or whatever, it's helpful to have introduced that kind of language. And it's also the language for talking about what your favorites or least favorites are. So that's a really simple kind of activity and it's a way of finding out what they want what they watch the other I do the classic find someone who activity where I do things like I have a find if you're not familiar with find someone who's so basically you have a list of have you ever type questions students stand up with the list of questions they go up to other students they say um, for example have you ever watched a movie 20 times so what would your answer be Harry Absolutely yes. Yeah, but Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Okay, you're joking, really? <laughs> no, I loved that as a kid. I absolutely loved it. I did. I did I've got the films I've watched it. twenty times that I had to watch because my kids watched them. So things like Finding Nemo, I must have seen. I don't know how many times. So oh yeah, Moana. Of... I've seen Moana so yeah, many times. Yeah, but you can also include things like um, so. In, in your questionnaire, you have things like, "Have you ever made a TikTok video?" And if the student says yes, you write your name. But obviously, you find out what it was about and you get them to show it to the rest of the class because it's kind of interesting or um have you ever uh, i can't remember what other oh have you ever made oh have you ever watched a how-to video on youtube and then you find out what it was they were watching um that kind of thing's nice because it's got a language purpose students can see the point of it you can target it for present perfect if that's what you want or you can target it for the kind of vocabulary connected with video you want to give them but you're also listening in as the teacher because you're discovering what type of things students actually want to watch um i love how to's i absolutely love how to videos to take into the classroom as well because they have such an obvious structure as well that it's so good for students to then take away and come back with their own video. It's such... Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's, it writes itself as a lesson, doesn't it? Because you've got the stages in the video, you put them on the board, put them in the right order, then you pick out the sequencing language or whatever the video is doing, and then for homework, they have to make their own, yeah. The, the great one for that is the TED Talk, How to Tie a Shoelace, and it completely revolutionizes the way you, you tie your shoelace, and it's like two minutes long, I mean, it's... It's the perfect video. Oh, how to um, do, do you know a funny fact about me, John? <laughs> I I didn't. This is quite embarrassing, actually. Um, I didn't learn properly. I could only do bunny ears until the day before my seventeenth birthday. Is that what they're called, bunny ears? Well, you know when you just do the two little loops and you do another little knot with those. Well, yeah. I couldn't do a proper shoelace knot until the day before my seventeenth birthday. Now, the reason for that. Um, is when I was younger, I was very clumsy. I'm left-handed as well, so that was an excuse for everything. Um, and I could, I couldn't. Does that really affect tying shoelaces? Apparently, I couldn't Maybe fathom. I, I just couldn't fathom. Like no matter how much my, my parents tried to teach me, my granddad tried to teach me, couldn't. Just couldn't do it. So at the from by the age of about eight, I'd learned how to. Well, finally, you know, at six, I'd been taught how to do bunny ears. At the age of about eight, I just gave up. I'm just going to do bunny ears for the rest of my life. And then the day before my 17th birthday, I said to my mum, I said, mum, I'm old enough to drive a car. I think it's about time I learned how to tie my shoelaces. Um, and I did. So, but I didn't have the TED, TED talk for that. So it didn't, 
It could have saved endless years of embarrassment. Might, but what he up. does in the TED Talk, he shows you a better technique for tying that nobody's ever thought of. But it's just it requires one change the way you tie your shoelace and your shoelace never comes undone again. Oh, wow. And it I genuinely works. I have to say, I still tie my shoelaces. Actually, I've started doing what my son does, which is you just leave the shoes tied up. And if they're trainers, you can put them on without retying them anyway. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I just, I just tuck the laces in sometimes. Also, and then, also, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very lazy with my shoes. I, I try to wear slippers as often as possible. Um, <laughs> I've been told I'm not supposed to wear them to the supermarket, though. Um, okay. I'm not well, sure why. Yeah, when you start looking down to check that you've put trousers on, that's when you worry how you you get yeah. <laughs> or, you, or you think have i still got my pajama bottoms on again something i often do in the suit yeah. i live in a village so i, I you know it's yeah. not particularly frowned upon but for the school pickup i've started wearing not pajamas anymore they are a basic black so it's okay like they could almost be running trousers but okay. they're quite obviously not um yeah. anyway we've we've digressed so um We've talked about various ways of using kind of video in class and different types of videos to, to bring in and use. Um, I'm just wondering, what would be your kind of go-to video to, to do as a class, you know, to, to produce? You mentioned before, back in the 90s, it was hard because it was almost like a movie studio. Now we've all got phones. Everybody can use editing software. What would be your kind of first go-to video kind of project for a class? Sorry, the class is making the video? Or the class is making the video. video. They're making the video. Uh, well, I would, I would always introduce it quite simply and safely. So I would do something like the idea of, you know, there's been a unit of the course book and then I'd say for homework, make a, take a photo or take a short video um, related to uh to the unit so i knew it was going to recycle the vocabulary um particularly from you know my experience of like teaching teenagers and stuff or younger learners my i always had one eye on what the parents were thinking about what was going on and i always found when you set those kinds of slightly out there homework tasks it was likely you were likely to get comeback for us i always had my stock thing ready to sort of this is what i'm going to tell the parents of why i'm doing it um, so something quite sort of simple like that, then I do stuff like, um, one of the things I do, one of the thing, mistakes I think teachers make is when they set the students, the task of creating the video, they don't have the students formally spend time planning it. And it's actually the planning stage or the screenplay writing stage. That's where language generation really happens. It's mm -hmm. not. Not so much in the video, because quite often the video script itself might be quite limited and the students don't necessarily say that much. So if you can tap into, I mean, one thing I do is have like a worksheet and it's like um, it's a sort of shooting script. So I'll say in one column every 20 seconds, draw me roughly what, you, what I'm going to see in the video. And then next to it, what are we going to hear? So they kind of create a storyboard. And if I put them into the groups of three or four that are going to make the video, that, that ensures I'm getting some genuine language practice. And the students are using English because they're writing it down and I, they know that I'm going to have them explain it to me before they go off and shoot it. And actually, that's the bit where there's probably more validity in terms of the language practice they might get. And they discover that planning a video 
is actually really important. Or I'll give them screenplay writing techniques. Um, or, I mean, I have told class about film theory because like in, in screenwriting, there's a theory of plot, plot point one, plot point two. So you have the setup, the confrontation, and then the resolution. Um, and I'll show students that you can't have a decent movie. If you want some kind of narrative, you can't have a good narrative without conflict. It, it just doesn't work. It's, um, I think it was Kurt Vonnegut who originally said, there's no story without conflict. So you can give students a very boring script. Funnily enough, you'll find this in the back of ELT course book. So if it's the guest checking into the hotel, I guarantee in the course book video version, the guest will check in, go to reception, get their key, get into the room. That's all that happens. And the guest gets in every time. But if you show them the script and say, well, in the real world, we know things go wrong when you check into a hotel, rewrite that script. Suddenly the script will take on life and stuff goes wrong, like they don't have the reservation or the guest has forgotten the passport and all that kind of. If you introduce that idea of conflict, students have a lot of fun redoing the screenplay and they're still practicing the language from the course book, like, you know, the language they need to check into a hotel, but you've added conflict and confrontation. And, and just that exercise of writing, it's great because it involves speaking and writing. So it's sort of multi-skill. The students are writing that. And you always got the student who wants to be the screenplay writer. And then you've got the student who wants to be the director. And you've got the student who wants to act in it. So it naturally, within a group of students, the, the roles are kind of farmed out uh, in that way. So actually, in terms of tips for setting up filming, and I just think students will naturally just jump straight to the filming stage and they won't spend the time on the planning. You just end up with a video that kind of isn't great. And, oh, and, I've made and when so they many bring mistakes. it into the class and they show it to the rest of the class by video number four, everybody's starting to think, crikey, how much more, how much, you know, how many more are we going to watch sort of thing? Yeah. So, um, and, and I really think that's, that's an important part of it is, is to build that time. And that's stuff you can do in class and then they can go off and do the filming, you know, at home. They can all meet up in the street or wherever they're going to film it. That is um, absolutely the, the place where I would fall down originally. You know, it would be, you know, okay, we're going to make a video, right, go make your video. And I wouldn't focus enough time on the actual preparation until I realized after, you know, one, once or twice, them coming back after spending an entire class out in the corridors, you know, recording each other. Yeah, yeah. And it was just atrocious. And I was like, something that's gone wrong here is my fault. Of, terrible waste of classroom time. and you know, Massive waste. Yeah. And I just, and from that, I kind of looked back at it and thought, you know what? The thing that went wrong was completely my fault. I didn't. Yeah. sit down with but them we didn't go to your earlier comment you said you've seen loads of classes where teachers are sort of throwing a video for the sake of throwing in the video and that can never be the reason it has to be we're doing this okay video is the thing students like watching it and, and making them but they're still i mean there's still got to be sort of you know language practice going on and they've got it you've got to be able as a teacher you've got to justify and say well the aim of doing that is they're getting speaking practice i mean you know typically planning a video when they report it back to me, they're using verb phrases for planning. They say, well, we plan to, we hope to, we're going to. And you, you might you might actually do it in order to target that language if you if you know if that's your aim as a class. You've still got to justify it from an aims goal point of view. Excellent. Now I'm gonna we're gonna shoot off for two minutes. We'll be back in two minutes. We're just gonna quickly listen to the adverts, then we'll be the last 10 minutes uh, through to the end. Um, if if you'd like to bear with us, that would be lovely. 
Um, okay. Fantastic. I'm just going to shoot off to the just the adverts this time, and we'll be back very shortly. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. We are back. Um... Thank you very much. For, oh, I, I just unmuted John and he unmuted himself at the same time. So I remuted him. Um, but he's back now as well. Um, <laughs> you so thanks. muted, Harry. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. Um, so um, I've got a question, John, um, from me. Okay. So I'm, you know, I, I, I make materials, as you know. I, I also make videos. Um, sometimes they're okay. Other times they're rubbish. Um, but that's just me. Um, I blame the time side of things and not having enough of it but I want to know what's the when you're creating um, a worksheet let's say or when you're creating materials um, how do you find that perfect video to go in with your with your subject uh, I normally start with a video so I see a video and I think okay that's the lesson I mean sometimes you just come across videos authentic videos and they're just screaming at you. The language point is just right there out at you, and you just know straight away, and you can see the whole lesson just 
appear around the shape of it. Um, other videos, um, like if it's when I've written academic English materials that tend to be lecture based, that kind of thing, those are quite tougher to work with because they are what they are. And the nature of them is that they're quite text based. Um, and other videos, like I quite like working with silent videos with lots of action. My favorite are sort of 1920s, 1930s Chaplin films because everything's big and over the top and um, the actions are big and the objects are big. And so they're really, they're great, particularly for lower level material because you, um, they're really easy to, to, to use as the basis for a, for a lesson. Um, there's a lot of nice animation stuff now on YouTube, sort of people, good filmmakers are making interesting short animated movies with nice narrative twists in them. Um, uh, or, or there's bl black and white ones are interesting. Black and white's kind of interesting in the way that black and white's interesting with images because often color gets in the way. Everybody spends time talking about colors. If you remove color, suddenly we become more interested in character. Um, so I quite like them with, that's why I like sort of black and white videos. And I often look for structure in the video. So if it's a narrative, I'd mentioned earlier about the theory of screenplay, you've got your two plot points. If you've got a short film that's been made by a good filmmaker, you can identify the two plot points and that gives you a three part structure to the video. And that's naturally lends itself to a worksheet because you might watch the whole video and then you break it down into its three parts to the setup, the confrontation, and then the resolution. Um, and that kind of gives you a structure because the structure is built into the video. Um, and that's, you know, that's almost you get your, your first viewing exercise and then each exercise goes with the three parts of the video. And then you've got the, the end task, which might be getting students to create something based on what they've seen. Um, so there's a kind of natural structure to it in those situations. Yeah, I, I find, um, you know, when I was when I was in the classroom a lot more, it would it would more be I'd see a video and create a class because of the video as opposed to have an idea and then try and find a video for it. I, I find that quite tricky sometimes. Like I need, you know, I, I'd rather if I'm going to create a class for a video. Uh, sometimes it's, e it's easier if somebody gives you the video and then you have to create a class for it rather than having the class idea and going out and finding the video because I can just spend so long looking through endless numbers of videos. Like, oh, that's not quite right. It's not doesn't quite fit it perfectly. I, I'd rather have this there. So I don't know. I find that. Yeah, there's some videos that you just instantly look at them. I like it when people give me a video and say, we really need this in the course for whatever reasons. And I quite like that. That's where... But that's that's the sort of the side of creativity where you're having to work with constraints. And for me, I've always liked it when somebody's given me limitations to a writing project because it it it's it's kind of like here's your straight jacket. Now what you, can you do with it? And I actually like to a lot of creativity comes from having to work with something that's been forced upon you. So that's actually always quite a nice uh, challenge. I mean, there are some videos I've seen. I thought I cannot. I cannot make that work. It's just, it's an innately boring video. And from a language point of view, it's not that exciting. Um, They're often somewhat contrived as well. A lot of videos that we see in course books and it can be, you know, when you have the, the video that they've made that is there to show the second conditional. 
Yeah. And it just has it over and over again with the second conditional. And it just feels, sometimes they just feel so contrived that it's like... I think, I, I'm not sure how much you see that so much nowadays. I think certainly in the past, I remember having an argument with a guy who used to make videos for an ELT company. And he said in the in filmmaking, there's the rules show, don't tell. He said, that's not true in ELT video. You have to show and tell. And I still disagree with him because... I think you just end up with these videos where everything's kind of narrated because there's this feeling that if you don't have language going on all the time, it therefore it's it's not doing its job as something that teaches language. But I mean, you know, that's when we forget that students aren't human and that they have emotions and they laugh at things and they cry at things. I mean, sometimes they just want to watch a, a film that's good. And if it doesn't have that much language, that's fine because they're still having an emotional engagement with the film, but that probably makes the engagement with the language that is in it probably stronger than if they're just having to sit and watch a two-minute video where a narrator doesn't stop talking because it's been sort of shoehorned in to demonstrate a variety of language structures. Um, and, and it also goes back to that thing of when I've tried to write video scripts I never feel that they're really quite as good as just going out into the street. And as long as you, as long as I draft the right type of questions, and if I'm doing the interview, I can kind of, you get that sort of mix of authenticity mixed with the sort of target stuff that you need in it, and you get a much better quality type of video. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah I, I've, yeah, those. <sighs> Those videos, those ones that, you know, that the show and tell ones, they often end up with the students just switching off completely. I mean, like I say, the second well, conditional sensory one... overload because you're, you, you're dealing with the visual and you're trying to listen and actually you do need to break it down a lot for language learning. I mean, there's, a, you know, there's that standard approach, isn't there, in lots of lessons where you switch the sound off, play the video, ask the students what you think the video is about, and then you play it with the sound. There's a very good reason for it is because you're trying to deal with it. You're trying to deal with two different things. So actually, initially, just to sort of cope with the visuals and get used to that, it makes sense that you do that before you then try to 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 listen. And maybe on the third listening, that's when you show the subtitles as well. You know that kind of yeah. thing. I mean, those those sort of classic video techniques are there for a, a good reason. Yeah. Well, yeah, because a good a good worksheet or a good lesson or a good teacher will be able to get language from a video, like whether it's a silent video or not, you know. So let's say we're talking about the second conditional. It could be people sitting there dreaming of buying a big house, you know. You can easily get the second conditional. If he won the lottery, he would buy a big house, you know. The, not every video needs to necessarily have language in it. But maybe grammar also isn't the best, always doesn't, isn't the best use of video. Maybe it really isn't. Is. And also, <laughs> it really um, isn't. For me, it's about, a lot of the time, it's, it, it's real develops listening skills and develops speaking skills. I mean, having said the video with the narration, if you have a video with a strong narration, the obvious next step is with students, you prepare the students enough and then you remove the sound and they have to create their own narration for the video. And that's a nice speaking activity. So there are ways you can turn it to your advantage. It is lovely. I, I remember I actually did that with, I, I had a class of massive football fans. You know, there, there was yeah. a whole group of them. Um, there were about nine in the class and they were all like super into football. And so the obvious thing for that was, Let's make our own commentary. 
on on these goals. Let's make our own commentary and just. It was so good to, to like see their their development. Well, my, uh, you just reminded me. I, I mentioned the car parts factory that I worked in, and I was working with these engineers. And I remember there was a uh, there was a video from a very famous course book, um, but it was about the mini car and its evolution and its engine because it had they they put the engine in sideways, which gives the mini its the old mini its shape. I didn't really understand it, but the, the video, this ELT video, it was like a documentary with narration. And uh, of course, I was going to do that. And then at the end, I was going to switch the sound off and all the students narrate in pairs because I knew they actually knew about how cars work. So I thought, well, they'll really manage that. Actually, what happened was they paused it and then they narrated and told me why the whole video was wrong and the mechanics in it was wrong and the narration was wrong. <laughs> and they kind of corrected the video. And it was one of those completely unplanned lessons, but one of the most satisfying from a language point, because it was real English for specific purposes. I mean, they were having to use all of this specific English to talk about car parts. So it was one of those kind of dream lessons in that context, but um, but they kind of re-narrated the video to make it correct. It was um, oh, that's that sounds like memory. an absolute dream. Well, it suddenly made what I thought was going to be a fairly dull lesson because I'm not that interested in cars into something. Even I became interested in the mechanics of how a mini engine works. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and it has been fantastic. I've just looked up at the time and realised that it is that time. Um, thank you so much for, for coming along. Thank you so much for being my guest. I find it so hard not to say that like Lumiere from Be- uh, Beauty and the Beast, but I've, I've managed. Um, you can burst it, into it's song. been lovely. Thank you very much for having me, Harry. I hope there were, I don't know who you had out there listening to us, but I hope they found it useful, interesting. I hope we I'm, answered I'm some sure of the questions. I'm sure they did. Um, I'm, you certainly answered the questions. You've certainly given me some more ideas for when I, um, you know, go out and create more materials using if videos. If anybody's interested, uh, I gave a talk recently about using video and the videos I was recommending on YouTube, I put them onto a playlist on my YouTube channel, which is John Hughes ELT. So if you find the playlist, I think I can't remember what I called it, but I just put a few links into some videos I use and I might add a few more and they're kind of some of my favourites that I like using with students. So you can take a look at them if you're interested. Oh, brilliant. I will put the link in the description box for anybody who's listening back. Um, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Um, I'll be back next week, um, as always. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. And I'll, I'll hear you next week. Thanks a lot, Harry. See you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.